let's pray as we uh, prepare to uh, get into the Word of God. Lord God, we are people who, none of us were alive in uh, 1770, none of us will be alive in 2300, we are alive today in 2021, you are the one who chooses the generation and the place that we will live in, and so here we find ourselves, Lord, and we are another generation of people who need discernment from you concerning how to carry ourselves as kingdom people in this world. And so I'm praying, Lord, that this time in your word, this time of uh, discussing the shape of the kingdom versus the shape of the culture, that this would be a time of discernment, that your Holy Spirit would come and guide and teach and lead and nudge us. I pray these things in Jesus' name and for your glory. Amen. It was a critical moment a critical juncture in the history of God's people. The time had come for the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Israel, to transition from a king named Saul to a new king named David. At this critical juncture of history, throngs of people from a variety of tribes descended on the town of Hebron to openly display their support of David. These thousands of David supporters had already witnessed David's amazing military exploits, his victories, and they also recognized the prophetic words that had been spoken over David's life. Now, they gathered there around David, thousands upon thousands of them, ready to crown David as their king. There were thousands from Judah and thousands of Simeonites, and there were Levites and Ephraimites. There were crowds of people from Manasseh and Naphtali and Dan and Asher, and there were Reubenites, and there were Gadites, etc. And the Word of God tells us that there were, in this huge crowd of people, 200 chiefs of Issachar, who likewise came to show their support of David. These 200 chiefs of Issachar came to David along with their relatives. And these particular people... These men of Issachar, says 1 Chronicles 12, verse 32, these people had understanding of the times to know what Israel ought to do. Again, the men of Issachar had understanding of the times to know what Israel ought to do. Now, isn't that an interesting, tantalizing little description? We don't get any fleshing out of exactly what it meant that the men of Issachar had understanding of the times, but we can gather at least this. These people had a wisdom, or we might say they had a discernment concerning the times that they lived in. They had insight into the zeitgeist or the mood 
of their particular period of history. And it should be noted, it shouldn't escape us, that they were there at Hebron supporting David and not supporting Saul. Their very support of David was the result of them understanding the times. And we say, good choice, men of Issachar. Do you and I understand our times? Could it be said of us that we have insight and perception into our times? How much discernment concerning the mood of our day do we actually have? In this sermon series, we are striving together to gain a little perspective on our times. We're trying to figure out together some of the contours of this massive shift that is happening in the Western world. And we are trying to understand what our response should be as kingdom people. I mentioned last Sunday that ideological social justice is a new godless religion. It has the hallmarks of a religion. Now, this morning, I want to spend a little time making some observations about this. Let's try to understand our times by discerning how ideological social justice is a new religion that we would do very well to reject ourselves, and also we would do well to help our neighbors steer clear and reject it as well. The new religion of ideological social justice appeals to a hunger in us. It appeals to a hunger. Namely, a hunger that the world would be a just place. A place where victims of oppression would be vindicated and liberated. But in ideological social justice, that noble hunger for justice is conceived and it is located exclusively on the human-to-human plane. It's strictly limited to the human-to-human plane. It's this group of humans versus this other group of humans over here. The playing field in ideological social justice is solely, solely under the sun, to borrow the phrase from the book of Ecclesiastes. God and the heavenly is ignored in ideological social justice, wrongs in this way of thinking, wrongs are not going to be addressed by God. They must only and always be addressed by us on the human playing field. And that leads us to the conception of atonement. 
in the religion of ideological social justice. First of all, as we already mentioned last Sunday, this new religion is obsessed with the categories of transgression and innocence. Transgression and innocence. There is a transgressor and there are innocent ones. Right now, at least in our current moment, the transgressor in our culture is a person like me in my assigned group, the white heterosexual male. Original sin in the religion of ideological social justice, original sin is whiteness. And the original sinner is the white heterosexual male. And under the new religion, the white heterosexual male is irredeemable. His transgression is intractable. Redemption for the white heterosexual male is impossible. There is no salvation for him under the new religion of ideological social justice. There is no overcoming his sin. There is no conception of forgiveness for him. He is the assigned perpetual scapegoat. And trust me, as a white male, I'm not saying any of this to cast myself as any sort of victim. I'm simply pointing out here the doctrine of ideological social justice, how it conceives the world, and I'm doing that so that you and I, if you are a born-again believer in Jesus Christ, so that you and I, as Christians, might better understand our times. Well, does the religion of ideological social justice have any sort of conception of salvation? And if so, what might it be? Joshua Mitchell is a writer who does a great job describing the conception of salvation in this new religion when he says this, quote, Salvation comes to those who spend their lives cleanly distinguishing between moral transgressors and mortal innocents, and then turning their cathartic rage toward new transgressors as the old ones are purged. Close quote. And of course, as Mitchell knows as he writes that, and as you and I know also as believers, the salvation that is described in that passage is no salvation whatsoever, no salvation at all. Well, this new religion of ideological social justice also borrows the category of holiness from Christianity, although it doesn't call it that. But the holiness in ideological social justice is victimhood. The more you can demonstrate the ways in which you are a victim, the holier 
you become under the new religion. And holiness can be accrued to you in the religion of ideological social justice by you fighting for and advocating for the victims who are assigned by the ideology. Your holiness in this new religion, your holiness is shown by how much authentic indignation and outrage you can display on behalf of the culturally assigned victim groups. And your own personal validation comes by your expression of authentic outrage under this new religion. Going further, as Vodi Baukum has observed, there is also a new birth in this new religion of ideological social justice, a new being born again, and it's called being woke or going woke. Unwoke people, according to the ideology, are, they're dead in a sort of caveman mentality. In the new religion, woke people have experienced the necessary rebirth. And this new religion of ideological social justice also has a Gnostic flavor about it, as Baucom and others have pointed out, a Gnostic flavor. Now, if you're not familiar with the term Gnostic, one of the basic and false ideas uh, in Gnosticism was the idea that only some select and special people can attain higher spiritual knowledge. One of the false ideas of Gnosticism. One of the doctrines in this new religion of ideological social justice, one of the doctrines taken straight out of the playbook of radical feminism is that the more a given group's experience of oppression is, the more that group has special knowledge, special insight as concerns reality. Knowledge and insight that is simply inaccessible to other groups. And remember, as we said last week, this whole religion groups people together in monovalent, monolithic groups. So that is a Gnostic sort of idea. Further, this religion of ideological social justice also has its own set of theologians, quote unquote, theologians in big quotation marks, people like Robin DiAngelo and Peggy McIntosh and Kimberly Crenshaw and many others, and in some circles within the church, within the church today, we are told that we really won't understand reality unless we read such authors. The Bible is great, they say, but it's really insufficient. We need these additional authors and books if we really want to understand reality. So goes the argument. 
Again, what are we doing here? We're pointing out here how ideological social justice is really a new religion. It bears the hallmarks of being a new religion. And finally, I would observe that the new religion of ideological social justice is characterized by a sort of what I'm calling a drawbridge mentality. The drawbridge has been pulled up. There is no access granted for us to engage the castle. The new religion is closed to any opposition or arguments that might come against it. For example, the ideologues in this new religion hedge themselves in by declaring that things like reason, argumentation, logic, those things, if they are used against the religion, they will say those are only weapons employed in the, in the hands of oppressor groups who want to maintain their power. That's how they hedge themselves in. So you must either accept the new religion or you will be accused of being on the side of the oppressor. There is no arguing against the new religion. There is no falsifying it. No evidence can be presented against it. The drawbridge has been pulled up. The fortress is sealed. You are not simply wrong if you disagree with the new religion. You're not simply wrong, you are evil, and on the level of your social standing then, under this new religion, you will certainly pay for being evil. You will be canceled, and possibly you might lose your job. I think it's very important what Rod Dreyer says here. It's inspiring to me. He says that a totalitarian system, which is another term for this new religion, a totalitarian system, he says, depends for its existence on a people's fear of challenging the lies. Again, Dreyer points out a totalitarian system depends for its existence on a people's fear of challenging the lies. Well, as believers in Jesus Christ, we need to challenge the lies. And we need to do it openly, and we need to speak up. Again, a totalitarian system depends for its existence on a people's fear of challenging the lies. As Christian believers, my friends, we see, we see the vivid and the sharp night and day contrast between the religion of ideological social justice and the Christian religion. In Christianity, our playing field is not limited only to the human-to-human playing field. It's not just limited there under the sun. Our worldview is much deeper. At every level, It concerns the relationship of human beings to God. And we don't see one group of humans as the oppressors and transgressors while the other groups are innocent. No. 
we see every single human being, doesn't matter who they are, every single human being as having a sin-sick heart in desperate need of the redemption that God has provided in Jesus Christ. No matter their racial, sexual, or gender identity. And we see Jesus Christ as the only innocent one who has ever walked this earth. We see him as the innocent lamb who willingly became the scapegoat to save transgressors like you and like me. He is the scapegoat sent by the Father to save the world from sin. Our justification is to be found in Him, not in our activism, not in our scapegoating other people, not in critical social theory of any kind. Our justification and validation and identity is in Jesus Christ our Lord. I am pleading with you, Christian. If you are already dabbling in critical race theory and ideological social justice, I am pleading with you here and now to not be like Esau. Do not sell your birthright, your inheritance, for the red stew of ideological social justice. Instead, I'm pleading with you to become atheistic to this new religion of ideological social justice. Yes, become atheistic to it, disbelieve it, reject it, stop being seduced by it, and turn to Jesus Christ. Your inheritance, your birthright comes by Christ. And that inheritance is, as 1 Peter says it is, your inheritance in Christ is imperishable. It's not going to perish ever. It is undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Cling to your birthright. Understand the times. Reject the new religion, though it may cost you something. Cling with all your God-enabled might to the inheritance that Christ has secured for you by his cross. The men of Issachar had understanding of the times to know what God's people ought to do. Do we? And here's something else as we describe this new religion. Have we been noticing in our culture, have we been noticing how the basic categories of life have shifted with the onslaught of this thing? So here's a story. When I was 13 years old, one beautiful summer day, I was riding my bike with my brother riding his bike beside me 
We're riding down the road, and my brother says to me, turn here, and I didn't hear him, and so our bikes collided, and I went straight backwards somehow onto the asphalt. I was not wearing a helmet because it was 1983. I went straight back on the asphalt with my head, smash. I don't remember the accident at all. In fact, all the details had to be related to me afterwards, but I ended up with a very severe concussion. Now, when I think of something that is dangerous, I think of something like that, right? Riding a bike, helmetless, and having my unprotected head make intimate contact with the asphalt with some force. That is dangerous. Or a grease fire in a kitchen is dangerous. Losing a wheel while driving at 100 kilometers an hour on the Trans-Canada, that's dangerous. But see, here's the point. When I was back in school, as I sat in a classroom back in my school days, reading some author with whom I disagreed, though I may have described that experience as a challenging experience, I most certainly would not have described it as a dangerous experience. But today, it is described that way. In so many public university social sciences departments in our day, the categories of danger, harm, unsafe, are now attached to authors and works of literature that at one time might simply have been described as challenging but nevertheless helpful for my own growth. See, the categories have shifted. We've gone from challenging now to unsafe, harmful, dangerous, and of course those works that are deemed unsafe, harmful, dangerous are censored out. Or how about this one? There was once a time, listen, there was once a time when certain comments that were made from one person to another person might be considered rude comments or awkward comments. But now, those same kinds of comments are classified as aggressions microaggressions. Do you see the category shift? The word aggression is employed purposely in the new religion because the word aggression connotes what? It connotes attack, which very much fits, by the way, the us versus them paradigm of the new religion. So the idea is, well, this person that I'm talking to just made a comment to me that regardless of their intent in making the comment has impacted me negatively. They are attacking me by that thing that they just said. It is a microaggression. Now, Right here, I need to bring in briefly Greg Lukianoff and Jonathan Haidt from their 2018 book, The Coddling of the American Mind, How Good Intentions and Bad Ideas Are Setting Up a Generation for Failure. 
I should note here, just for the record, that Haidt, Jonathan Haidt, has a PhD in social psychology. In their book, these authors discuss something called cognitive behavioral therapy. Now track with me here, CBT for short, cognitive behavioral therapy. Speaking personally, just for a moment, I'm a guy who has actually benefited from being counseled by a counselor using CBT. It's a counseling technique that helps you overcome negative and distorted thinking patterns. Helps you overcome negative and distorted thinking patterns. So for example, one of the things that I had to work on is a distorted thinking pattern called magnifying. It's an unhealthy thinking pattern. So an example of magnifying would be this. I'm out in the yard, I cut a board half an inch too short for my home project, and then automatically my thinking goes to this. What a failure I am. I can't even cut a board properly. Magnifying is when you emphasize small things all out of proportion to their actual importance. I had to overcome, and I'm still working on it, that negative, distorted thinking pattern. Other distorted thinking patterns are things like catastrophizing. So an example of catastrophizing would be this. I have a headache, it must mean brain cancer. Or, he didn't call me back, he must hate me. Catastrophizing is when the imagination goes unchecked into overdrive. You jump to unwarranted conclusions and unjustified conclusions. Another distorted, negative thinking pattern that counselors can help us overcome. Or another one is mind reading. An example of the distorted, unhealthy thinking pattern called mind reading would be this. Oh, he thinks I'm an idiot. Mind reading is a pattern where you assume that you know the inner workings and the outcomes of another person's thoughts when you can't know those thoughts. Mind reading. Now, what's the reason I'm mentioning all this? The, the reason I'm mentioning this and the reason that Lukianoff and Haidt discuss it in their book is to show in the ideological social justice worldview to show that these negative, distorted thinking patterns are encouraged. They are promoted, in fact. Mind reading is encouraged, and letting your feelings guide you is encouraged, and catastrophizing is encouraged, and emotional reasoning is definitely encouraged. Assuming the worst in people is encouraged. And the whole microaggressions, that, that whole nonsense, is a prime example here. With microaggressions, you assume that you can read the other person's mind, and you catastrophize, and you reason with your emotions. In a section of their book where they are discussing mind reading, Lukianoff and Haidt say this. Listen to this. They say, quote, 
if done habitually and negatively, it is likely to lead to despair, anxiety, and a network of damaged relationships. Close quote. Now, friends, is it any wonder that in our young people today, there is such an epidemic of anxiety and despair? Is it any wonder when these very distorted thinking patterns are being encouraged in the world of education and in many university programs? Believer in Jesus Christ, I am pleading with you. Let's go to the scriptures right now. I am pleading with you to understand the times and be renewed in the spirit of your minds, Ephesians 4.23. Set your mind where? On the spirit, Romans 8.6. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind, Romans 12, 2. Have the mind of Christ, 1 Corinthians 2, 16. The thinking patterns in the new religion of ideological social justice are most certainly not a value add in your life. Recognize also, kingdom person, we need to recognize that the new religion of ideological social justice has its own lexicon. In other words, it has its own range of terms that it uses to describe the harm and the oppression that it sees everywhere. Uses these terms to describe the harm and the oppression that it sees everywhere. So here is just some of that lexicon some of those terms, if you hear people using these terms, you'll know that you're in the neighborhood of ideological social justice. So terms like these, microaggression, microassault, microinvalidation, terms like mansplaining, whitesplaining, and straightsplaining, Terms like heteronormativity and cisnormativity. Terms like misgendering and deadnaming and triggering and cultural appropriation. And then on top of that, so many older terms and older phrases have taken on entirely new meanings, entirely new meanings under the new religion. Many terms, many phrases have been utterly transformed, and in many cases, they have been greatly expanded in their, ter- in their meaning. So terms like these, racist, doesn't mean what it used to mean. Uh, a term like white supremacist doesn't mean what it used to mean. Anti-racism doesn't mean what it used to mean. Fascist doesn't mean what it used to mean. Nazi does not mean what it used to mean. 
Hate speech. That's a phrase that doesn't mean what it used to mean either. Understand the times. And also understand this, believer, that when the purveyors of the new religion of ideological social justice, when they come along trumpeting the value of diversity, what is actually meant, in a very deceptive way, what is meant is strict uniformity, strict conformity. While the new religion may want ethnic diversity, except for white people, it wants absolutely no political diversity. It wants a uniformity of politics. And under the guise, under the guise of valuing diversity, ideological social justice purveyors want uniformity even within its assigned groups. They want uniformity even within its assigned groups. So for example, if you are a black person who refuses to buy into the doctrines of ideological social justice, so say you're a person like uh, Vody Baucom or Candace Owens or Thomas Sowell or Virgil Walker or John McWhorter or even Kanye West, so many others, if you refuse to buy into the doctrine of ideological social justice and you're a black person, then the new religion is going to label you as no longer fully black. Or they will label you as having internalized racism. Because the new religion must have uniformity, it must have conformity, purity within its groups. And it will quickly dispense with those who refuse to go the group conformity route. The new religion must insist on this suffocating conformity, despite its alleged concern for diversity. Well, friends, we began this morning by going to 1 Chronicles chapter 12. I want to return there now as we end. So again, here were the throngs of people from a variety of tribes gathering there at Hebron around God's chosen man, David, to make David king. And this was a critical moment in the history of God's people. This was a critical juncture in the history of God's people. And there they are rallying around God's chosen king. The men of Issachar were there. They had an understanding of the times to know what Israel ought to do. But what I want to draw our attention to here as we close is how much military hardware and military language just saturates this entire story. So come with me uh, to, if you have a Bible open, to 1 Chronicles 12, verses 23 through 37. Notice the military atmosphere here. It's very pervasive. So in verse 23, we have, notice the language, 
divisions and armed troops. In verse 24, we have shield and spear and more armed groups. In verse 25, mighty men of valor for war. In verse 28, the phrase mighty for valor and the word commanders also appears there. Verse 30, mighty mighty men of valor. Verse 32, the word command is there. Verse 33, seasoned troops equipped for battle with all the weapons of war. Do you notice the military atmosphere as the people gather around God's chosen king? Verse 34, commanders, men armed with shield and spear. Verse 35, equipped for battle. Verse 36, seasoned troops ready for battle. Verse 37, men armed with all the weapons of war. And then finally in verse 38, we have a summary statement of all of the foregoing. All these men of war arrayed in battle order. The gathering around God's chosen king in allegiance to the king in this critical moment of history, had a military atmosphere about it. And then, in verses 39 and 40, notice this, alongside that military atmosphere, there was also an atmosphere of festivity and joy. Verse 39, there was eating and drinking. Do you love to eat and drink? I do, as you can tell. Uh, Eating and drinking with David. Verse 40, more food, abundant provisions for the festivities, and the mention of joy comes there at the end of that verse. Friends in Christ, at this critical juncture of history, we gather around our king, the better than David, Jesus Christ. Our allegiance is to him in this critical moment of history. We reject the new religion of ideological social justice and we swear allegiance to King Jesus and his gospel. And it's a military atmosphere, isn't it? We put on our armor. It's wartime, soldiers of Jesus Christ. We gather before King Jesus, the King of kings and Lord of lords. We gather before him dressed in full battle array. And as we come before him, we know, don't we, his military exploits, how on the cross he conquered Satan, and was victorious over the principalities and powers. We know that King Jesus has already won the battle for us. But you see, we live in the in-between time, in between his cross and his resurrection, and his second coming for us. And in in the in-between time, there are still these mop-up operations, these mop-up battles that we must wage. And so we put on the armor of light, Romans 13, 12. We wage an inner war against our own sin. 
And as we think of how best to combat this new religion of ideological social justice, we recognize this, listen, that the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God, and we take every thought captive to obey Christ, 2 Corinthians 10, verses 4 and 5, and Ephesians 6, verses 11 through 13, we know it well. We put on the whole armor of God that we may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, no we don't, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, Christian, are you listening, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Christian soldier, I'm pleading with you this morning. Understand the times. Put on your whole armor and do it all in an atmosphere of joy. Christian believer, you are united with throngs of people from every tribe, language, people, and nation. You are gathered around God's chosen King of kings and Lord of lords. He is the supreme and sovereign Lord of the universe. He has won the ultimate victory by his blood shed on the cross. The history of this entire world is securely in his hands, and this is a cause for great joy even as we fight the battle in our armor. And so let's go forth this week. Let's live out, live out in your corner of the world, whatever you're doing at work, at home, in leisure, whatever it is you're doing, live out the values of your crucified and resurrected king before a watching world. Do it in the power that he supplies. Love your enemies Turn the other cheek. Take the log out of your own eye before drawing attention to the speck in your neighbor's eye. Oh, friends, let's practice forgiveness. Let's practice kindness, going back to the book of Ruth. Let's practice mercy, and let's keep no record of wrongs. Let's engage the hard work of peacemaking. Let's love our neighbor. Let's show this dying world what it looks like, in fact, to be image-bearing human beings. And let's do that to the glory of our crucified, resurrected, ascended, and soon-coming King. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you have not left us as orphans, but you have adopted us into your family. By Jesus Christ and his shed blood and by the power of the Holy Spirit, you have changed our allegiance as Christian believers from one kingdom of darkness to the eternal kingdom of light that is ruled 
by our King Jesus Christ. And I pray for everyone in the sound of my voice, Lord, that you have spoken today and that there would be a practical on-the-ground movement of the kingdom, of people in the church going and showing the world what the forgiveness and mercy and love and faithfulness of Jesus Christ looks like. I pray these things in the mighty name of our King, Jesus Christ. Amen.